0: Today on Off the Cuff Declassified, it's Inspector General Report Day, but harsh criticisms and many questions of DOJ still remain. Dr. John Lott joins me to discuss the latest Second Amendment issues. A former Obama staffer blows the lid off what she called a party culture complete with drugs on Air Force One. And did CBS News get caught red-handed spreading fake news? A tweet by the White House Press Secretary seems to say yes. Big day today, in addition to being President Trump's birthday, happy birthday, Mr. President. Even bigger news is that Inspector General Michael Horowitz, Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz's long-awaited report will be in our hands today. We'll be able to read it. It's going to be hundreds of pages. And uh, this is something I'm going to be covering very, very much in depth over the next days, probably weeks to come. The report is expected to be, like I said, hundreds of pages. But uh, I want to uh, today discuss what's most likely in the report, as well as big problems conservatives seem to have with the Department of Justice. Now, the report, of course, was looking into and is expected to slam the Department of Justice's handling, most notably the FBI's, specifically James Comey's lead, in the handling of the Hillary Clinton email Investigation. Of course, Hillary having a private server and mishandling classified emails. Well, conservatives and and credit were due, even some Democrats who were logical and, and not hyper partisan to the point of being delusional, were very uncomfortable that a sitting Secretary of State now, a Secretary of State has security clearances pretty much equivalent to that of the President of the United States, the Secretary of Defense, the head of the CIA, the head of the NSA. The State Department works very, very closely with the Oval Office, with the intelligence community. It's important to note that, to understand just how sensitive the intelligence was that Hillary Clinton had access. It's critical to understand that, to understand why so many, so many of us who analyze this, who understand this, so many conservatives, uh, and, and so many of you who have become very well educated on this, why you're so infuriated with What went on there with Hillary Clinton not being prosecuted, with Huma Abedin not being prosecuted, with Cheryl Mills not being prosecuted, with everybody around Hillary, essentially skating on things that there are many, many people sitting in federal prison for doing, most notably that sailor that President Trump recently pardoned. All that guy did was take photos of a submarine that were deemed classified to show his family, I think his girlfriend or his wife hey, here's where I work. And then he's going to delete them. He was criminally convicted. Yet what Hillary Clinton did was just far more egregious. I had a uh, very close friend, a very senior CIA officer, now works with another agency uh, uh, in the Department of Defense. And I asked him, compare what that sailor did to what Hillary Clinton did. And he said what the sailor did was PG-13. Comparatively, what Hillary Clinton did was triple X-rated. That's the difference. He said, that's really the only way I can describe this if you, want to, uh, uh, if you want to understand the sensitivity of what the sailor did as compared to the sensitivity of the information that Hillary Clinton mishandled. So to a person, anyone who worked inside the process, who understands these prosecutions and how all this works, well, they knew, they were more than convinced that Hillary Clinton should have been criminally prosecuted, as should have everyone who worked around her that was part and parcel to the mishandling of the classified info. So that's what the Inspector General Report is looking into. Why James Comey handled this investigation in an unprecedented and extraordinary way, not for the good, for the worse. That's what they were looking into. So here's a story at NPR, and it says the probe by Inspector General Michael Horowitz is expected to fault former FBI Director James Comey for violating long-standing department guidelines and mishandling the Hillary Clinton email investigation. Now, it, the, the report is also supposed to slam people like uh, Peter uh, Stroke and Lisa Page. Andrew McCabe <clears throat> excuse me, has already been uh, criminally referred over to the DOJ. They expect more to come With that, McCabe's lawyer uh, has confirmed that McCabe has been criminally referred uh, and uh, that prosecutors might even now consider more criminal charges against Andrew McCabe. McCabe is fighting back by suing the Department of Justice, saying he wasn't uh, afforded due process to fight his firing. Now, McCabe, you've seen the lawsuits that Andrew McCabe is involved in the lawsuit. And many people are, are confusing that. They think he's already fighting his criminal charges. No, that process hasn't even begun. He's been referred, but he hasn't been formally charged yet. What McCabe is suing, McCabe is suing about his job, about being fired by the FBI, what he's essentially saying is, I was never given uh, a chance to look at the information against me so that I could have appealed my firing in an administrative proceeding. But I spoke to... Uh, people inside the FBI, and they told me the FBI doesn't have really an administrative appeals process. When you're at the level of McCabe, really any agent, the attorney general, the deputy attorney general can pretty much fire you for any cause. And what they told me was the inspector general uh, submitting a report to the powers that be at the Department of Justice saying that Andrew McCabe, an FBI special agent and deputy director of the FBI, lying to federal investigators three times under oath was more than sufficient cause. In fact, they said it necessitated his firing. It had to be done. So they felt, uh, as did um, a couple of legal experts in employment law, federal employment law, all felt that McCabe doesn't have a legal leg to stand on. But we'll see. The courts have been doing weird things because when the uh, inspector general released that earlier statement that McCabe lied to them under oath three times, They pretty much took the wind out of any lawsuit sales Andrew McCabe might have. Then the deputy director of the FBI was putting people in jail for lying to federal investigators under oath, lying to federal investigators under oath. And they all felt that it was the most cut and dry case they'd ever seen of a justifiable firing at the FBI. So too for Comey, uh, because of his mishandling of the case, because of Rod Rosenstein's memo, And now, because of what's expected to come from this OIG report, uh, Comey, of course, has already been criminally referred referred to DOJ by members of Congress as well, Uh, specifically members of the Freedom Caucus and the House Intelligence Committee. We're going to get into many, many problems the House Intelligence Committee is having with the DOJ in, in just a bit. But we know what the report is about. We've heard all the names, Peter Stroke, Lisa Page, Andrew McCabe, James Comey. The list goes on. Now, Jeff Sessions, who has been very, very quiet, and I think that it is long past time for a new attorney general. I think Jeff Sessions is weak. He's ineffective. I think he has become subordinate to to Rod Rosenstein. Jeff Sessions has apparently surrendered the Department of Justice, and that is a, well, that's a tragic, tragic thing. Now, Jeff Sessions, though, did speak up on the OIG report. It reads encouragingly, but let me tell you my problem. Now, he did an interview uh, with The Hill and uh, Jeff Sessions said that Comey made, quote, a big mistake that belied a serious, a serious breach of discipline. Sessions also made it clear, I'm reading from The Hill, that he is open to firing more employees at the Justice Department Inspector General's soon-to-be-released report, well, coming today, warrants it. Now, Session says, quote, said, quote, I think it would be it will be a lengthy report and a careful report. I think it will help us better fix any problems that we have and reassure the American people that some of the concerns that have been raised are not true. If anyone else shows up in up in this report to have done something that requires termination, we will do so. Now, that to me reads like a whitewash. That reads like a whitewash. Reassure the American people that some of the concerns that have been raised are not true. If this report does not excoriate, eviscerate Loretta Lynch, the then attorney general, for a private meeting on a private jet with Bill Clinton, her former boss, who just happened to be a president, but more importantly for that meeting, was the husband of a suspect under criminal investigation by Lynch's DOJ. If she's not excoriated, if she if her disbarment isn't recommended in this report, then this report is whitewashed, which many conservatives feel because the report has been held back. The report has been held back and many people, including myself, feel that it was it has been held back to be redacted and sanitized. Now, the House Intelligence Committee has been requesting additional documents for, uh, from the Department of Justice, most notably Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein has repeatedly blocked the Department of Justice. He's been very uncooperative. Many of us, self-included, feel that Rosenstein is, uh, either has some kind of, of intimidation control over Jeff Sessions or is just younger and more energetic, But it always seems to be that whenever enough evidence pops up for Rosenstein to be removed from his position, his good buddy Robert Mueller leaks something that disables the White House from taking action. It it seems to many that Rosenstein and Mueller have taken control of FBI, that Jeff Sessions uh, of DOJ, that Jeff Sessions is very weak and he's subordinate to them now. And it's a terrible, terrible thing for the United States now. That, that those comments of Sessions. We're going to reassure you that nothing else went on. I feel that what this report's going to do is disappoint many of us beyond belief. Going to have a couple of people fired, justify Comey's firing. Nobody's going to be prosecuted and it's going to say, nobody else did anything wrong. Let's put the matter to bed because I believe that's what Sessions and Rosenstein want. But guys like Devin Nunez over in the house aren't laying down on this. Now, you remember... Uh, there were reports of a closed-door meeting back in January between members of the House Intel Committee, most notably the chairman, Devin Nunez, and Rod Rosenstein, in which Nunez alleges that Rosenstein threatened the committee and its staffers with investigation, subpoenas, etc., if they kept pressing. Well, the committee did its job, its oversight job of DOJ and others, and it kept pressing. So one staffer, now, staffers are coming out. Let me read you a tweet from Representative Matt Gates, a Florida congressman on the Intel Committee, somebody who has been very, very vocal in demanding documents from DOJ, in, in wanting to know what's really going on here, not wanting to just read this potentially whitewashed OIG report. Representative Gates tweeted uh, yesterday <clears throat> the DOJ's intimidation and stonewalling tactics have gone too far. I've heard firsthand from congressional staff following threats. Delivered by Deputy A.G. Rosenstein. Staff has literally been scared. To the point of physically shaking. In my office. Out of concern. For their family. That is unacceptable. Well. Fox News ran a story yesterday. GOP Paul's politician. Slam Rosenstein. Say staff shaking in fear. Over threats. And. Of course, referring to the text, uh, the tweet I just read you from Representative Matt Gates of Florida. One staffer said Rosenstein launched a, quote, sustained personal attack against a congressional staffer in retaliation for vigorous oversight and called the threats, quote, downright chilling. The DOJ and FBI, of course, have disputed the characterizations of the meeting with the DOJ official, telling Fox News that officials in the room described the characterization of events as false. Further, the official said that when Rosenstein returns to the United States from a work trip, quote, he will request that the House General Counsel conduct an internal investigation of these congressional staffers' conduct. Now, Jeff Sessions, who many of us do not trust, backed Rod Rosenstein. But I don't see any reason, any reason. For congressional staffers who don't make a lot of money, who have to exist in D.C., who have to go on to work in other agencies, I don't see any reason for them to lie. In contrast, I look at today's Department of Justice. Mueller keeps getting admonished by judges for playing fast and loose with exculpatory evidence. Rosenstein, who appointed him, being accused of threatening congressional staffers. Historically unprecedented move of the FBI number one and number two being fired and potentially criminally referred. You don't see any of these scandals in the House Intel Committee. You don't see any of these allegations leveled at the committee staffers. No. The credibility lies with these committee staffers, not with the Department of Justice and the FBI, not with Jeff Sessions, Rod Rosenstein, Robert Mueller and company. Not at all. Now, Sessions said, quote, In defending Rosenstein, I'm confident that Deputy Rosenstein, 28 years in the Department of Justice, did not improperly threaten anyone on that occasion. But we do believe that we have tried to be cooperative with them and made progress. In fact, have had some good relationship with top members of Congress. But again, reading from Fox News, Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio said he was flabbergasted by Sessions comments. He said, quote, I mean, what is the attorney general saying? He he said, and today we learned in Catherine's report, meaning Catherine Herridge of Fox News, that Rod Rosenstein was threatening members of the House Intelligence Committee for doing their job, for trying to get answers for the American people. And the attorney general says, that's okay. We're doing just fine. Representative Mark Meadows, Representative Mark Meadows jumped in. He says he doesn't know what Sessions talking about. He's and he went on to say that Sessions doesn't know what he's talking about himself. This is this is beyond bad. Jeff Sessions needs to go. And when you see uh, the accusations by Chairman Nunez for the FBI, accusations of obstruction of justice, they're pretty clear cut. Congress is saying we need these documents. We're entitled to these documents. We're clear to see these documents. The deadline is this day and this time. And DOJ basically says, go to hell. You're not getting them. That's obstruction of justice. Now, uh, uh, Chairman Nunez, this is from the Daily Signal, is accusing in a letter the agency of obstruction of justice and using, quote, an array of tactics to withhold the documents. He writes, DOJ continues to obfuscate and delay its production using an array of tactics such as incorrectly categorizing the requested documents of Gang of Eight level material in order to limit access. Of course, the Gang of Eight being the bipartisan group of eight uh, House members, uh, members of Congress. Such Congress by DOJ is unacceptable because the Gang of Eight is a legal fiction that has no basis outside of the confines of presidential approval and reporting of covert action. Gang of Eight is the leaders of the, the Republican and Democratic leaders of the House and Senate intelligence committees, as well as Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi. <clears throat> and those are the eight. The, um, but, but they're just a, a they're, they're a, a um, congressionally created group. They don't have any legally binding authority. The House Intel Committee, the Senate Intel Committee are the binding authorities. They should be getting this information. And then to uh, prove that, that Rosenstein, in his attempt to prove that he didn't threaten House members, well, he's asked the House General Counsel to investigate committee staff. This is very, very, very troubling, very, very troubling. And I I, uh, am going to read this report in depth. But right now, I don't have any confidence that this report is going to tell us what really happened right now. I and many others find this report to be a whitewash, to be a whitewash. And I feel that the report was delayed that the concerns of Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and Devin Nunes, those conservative congressmen who have been all over DOJ and FBI about what we're calling Obamagate or Spygate, I think their concerns, Representative Matt Gates, are very, very well-founded. It is long past time for President Donald Trump to now step in. We need a second. Every day, it seems like the left is pushing more mass hysteria, using uh, terms like mass shooting assault weapon. And many of us on the right, many of us who are pro-Second Amendment, try to debunk these. But few people do it better than my next guest, someone you've seen on the program many, many times, Dr. John Lott. Dr. Lott, of course, runs the Crime Prevention Research Center, and he's one of the most preeminent researchers and uh, strategists, really, on gun crime in the United States. Today, Dr. Lott joins me now. John, great to see you.
1: Good to talk to you again.
0: Always a pleasure. So you uh, have some new data on the site, on the Crime Prevention Research Center site. I encourage the audience, if you have not been to Dr. Lott's site, it's www.crimeresearch.org. It is literally a wealth of information. It's my go-to resource for uh, all things Second Amendment when I bring you those segments on the show. So it's very interesting data. It's uh, the title of, of, of this piece is updated. Mass-published shootings keep occurring in gun-free zones. 97.8% of these attacks have in gun-free zones since 1950, and this is relatively recent data. Uh, This is from uh, the end of May, really. So, uh, Dr. Lott, let's first uh, explain what is a gun, what is a mass shooting? How does the FBI or the criminological community define a mass shooting?
1: Well, uh, for about 30 years, the traditional definition for the FBI was uh, four more people killed in a public place, not involving some gang fight or uh, some other crime like a robbery. To try to get at those types of cases that rivet us on the news, Uh, you know, a school shooting or a shooting in a mall or a movie theater, where the point of the attack is to try to go and kill as many people as possible. Um, now, there's a difference between a mass shooting and a mass public shooting, and mass shooting may involve a shooting inside a home, may involve gang fights. In fact, the vast majority of them are. Uh, and those are important. Gang shootings, I'm, no one tries to minimize those, but the causes and solutions for gang fights are a lot different than the causes and solutions for why you have these mass public shootings where somebody goes into a school or a church or some place and just trying to kill people.
0: Right, and, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up because we had a very tragic incident, I think you saw it down here in Florida in Orlando a few days back, a guy, took four little children hostage, killed them, killed himself, after it right. was almost a 24 hour standoff with police. So that would be considered a mass shooting, obviously not a mass public shooting. Which data set would that be included in?
1: Uh, well, where did it occur? Did it in a, occur in or, a home?
0: Well, uh, it occurred in a, yeah, in an apartment in Orlando, Florida. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, then it would have been included as a mass shooting as opposed to a mass public shooting.
0: Right, right, right. So those are defined differently now. Within Dr. Lott's report, there is a spreadsheet, and I have the spreadsheet open. I really encourage everyone in the audience to go to crimeresearch.org dot org and look up this study because you and uh, you essentially listed every mass public shooting from 1998 through April 30th, 2018. This is hyper-recent data. You break down the, uh, the year of the state, the uh, city, the locality, the perpetrator, total people killed, whether or not it was a gun-free zone. So this is indisputable research. This is black and white. This is not anecdotal. Uh, you have literally how many incidents listed here? There are 60... Uh, 766 incidents listed. And your conclusion is that 97.8% uh, of these are occurring in gun-free zones.
1: Well, those are just part of the 97.8% goes back to 1950.
0: Right. But uh, <clears throat> did, this data, did this data set comport with the overall number?
1: Yeah, it's pretty close. Wow. Wow.
0: So what is, what, what is, is this conclusive for, in your opinion? You've probably done more research on this than anyone. I don't want to use platitudes or hyperbole like gun-free zones killed, but, but wouldn't you argue that this is conclusive proof that a bad guy wants a soft target, that a bad guy is less inclined to attack an armed hard target? Well, it's,
1: it's part of the evidence. Uh, you have other types of evidence, too. I mean, one is the, just the statements from these killers where they— when we do find diaries or other statements that they've made to people where they've explained why they go and pick the targets that they do. And, you know, these guys may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. They try to go to those places where they know victims aren't going to be able to go and defend themselves. They And, and you see <coughs> cases where even if there are police at a place who are in uniform, the police, Are the first people who are killed. But you also also see it to the extent that uh, these mass shootings do occur, how overwhelmingly, time after time, these killers pick those tiny areas in these right-to-carry states where people aren't allowed to go and defend themselves. So, I mean, you may have, you live in Florida, and uh, you can carry your permanent concealed handgun, you know, pretty much Everywhere, you know, there's a few places that you're not allowed to carry it. I'll tell
0: you, I'll tell you, John. One of those, one of the places I can't, and I'm always very concerned when I go is a stadium. If I go to a football game or baseball game or a concert, I can't have it there. And that's always been now. Granted, there's a police presence, but we both know. I mean, I was also, Uh, ah, cops can't be everywhere. And back back to another point you made, though. I've always one of the cases I've always used as an example of of Picking a soft target is the uh, Charleston shooting with D- Dylan Roof, of course, going into an African-American church, a black church, and murdering these people as they worshipped. And I always said, if this guy weren't specifically looking for a soft target, I and mean, it was just a racially motivated killing, why didn't he go onto a street corner where there were black gangbangers? Because they were armed, and they'd probably have shot back and killed him, was always my thought process on that.
1: Well, in fact, we have statements that uh, Dylan Roof had made to his compatriots about why he picked the church his original target was supposedly going to be uh uh charleston college but that uh he had checked into it and he realized that they had armed guards that were there
0: wow and
1: he had taken that into account and deciding not to go after that target
0: now doesn't this also comport with uh research uh from the book that really put your brand on the map more guns less crime and where you you looked at at inmates who had committed crimes and and didn't they overwhelmingly suggest that they would pick unarmed locations to rob or mug or uh, people to rob mug etc that that factored into their thought process as well
1: right well there's actually a study by uh two criminologists Wright and rossi where they went and did that survey and uh and you just find overwhelmingly that criminals take it into account. Now, some evidence that I have in more guns, less crime is to look at something called hot burglaries uh, or residential robberies. These are burglaries that occur while the residents are in the dwelling. Right. And what you find is that you can look across countries and the rate that that occurs is very closely related to whether the gun ownership rate in different places. So in the United States, you may have about Eleven to thirteen percent of of burglaries occur while the residents are in the dwelling. In a country like the UK, for example, about sixty percent of the robberies occur, or burglaries occur while the residents are in the dwell, in the home.
0: Because the bad guys and, are less uh, are less concerned about being shot by the homeowner.
1: Exactly. I mean, there've been surveys by places like Rand uh, in the United States or other places in these other countries. And they'll go and ask them, how long do you spend casing a home? Why do you spend the amount of time that you do? And American burglars spend about twice as long casing a home before they break in compared to their British counterparts, for example. And the reason that they give is that they're what you just said—that they're worried about being shot. Uh, Their British counterparts aren't concerned, so they, so Britain has a burglary rate twice the burglary rate of the United States. No, you know, let me ask you,
0: John, let me not interrupt, but would, would sure. I would assume that they would also be factoring in the police, right? Because the British police are by and large unarmed. And I, I worked, well, my, my former partner actually, when he was promoted, ran a burglary unit. So I went over with him for a little while. And we learned that they would case the homes for both reasons. And my evidence is anecdotal, but I interviewed the bad guys. One to see if the homeowner was armed or in any way, even with a butcher knife. And two, to see when the police rolled down that street because they factored in the police. I would assume that in, in the UK, the sure. bad guys are a little less afraid of the police because they can't shoot back.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you can find statements from uh, some American police who have served, uh, have, have gone over and become uh, police officers in Britain, actually, wow. who have talked about how different their experience have been You know, in, in the United States. American police run towards the crime right. uh, in Britain. It's not uncommon to have the British police run away from the crime when uh, shots are being fired.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's, it's unfortunate that they don't, uh, culturally they still won't make that shift toward armed police and I'm, I'm always shocked at how many in the populace there don't want it. Now one, you have another uh, uh, graph here, a pie chart. Percentage of shootings in gun-free zones between 1998 and December 2015, the there were only three, only only I should say 3.8 percent of mass public shootings occurred where guns were permitted. Four percent, 96.2 percent happened where guns were not allowed. I, I just I don't understand though how the anti-gunners can still look at this data and discard it and call for gun-free zones. I, it baffles me.
1: Right. Well. Uh, people like, uh, Bloomberg's every town and, and other groups, they want to define these things differently. So for example, the two big things that they go and look at is one where police are allowed to carry guns. They don't want to define those as gun-free zones, even if civilians are banned. Mm. And to me, it seems like there's a huge difference between the two types of cases. Uh, police who are in uniform have an extremely difficult job when they're trying to guard against these types of terrorist types attacks. If you're an attacker, you have a huge strategic advantage when the only person that's armed is in uniform. It's a very dangerous job. Those killers will go and target those individuals and kill them first, because they know if they killed the officer there, then they pretty much have free reign for going and attacking other people.
0: Yeah, and you know, John, that's one of the, uh, yesterday. yesterday, <clears throat> on the show, I had a very good friend of mine. He's a criminologist, uh, Dr. Adam Dobrin. And he, uh, he frequently uses your work in, in his classes. He, he teaches at a university here in Florida. And uh, we, uh, he's also a reserve police officer, deputy. And we often talk about this. He's been an, a good friend of mine for years. Why we, we, we legally would support open carry, the, the concept of open carry, carrying your handgun uh, not concealed, but personally would never do it. As two guys with Street would never do it because you're the first person a bad guy is going to take out. I've I've always liked the element of surprise, and it happened to me. Uh, A quick anecdotal story. I I was my partner. uh, We thought he broke his ankle. He didn't. He was in the emergency room. I was in uniform. I ran to buy food at a Wendy's restaurant in Washington Heights in Manhattan. Bad, bad neighborhood. We were working a parade detail, and I walked in as the place was being held up, and the guy swung what I thought was, a, I drew my gun. He swung toward me. I drew my gun. Then he started crying and dropped his gun. He was a kid with a fake gun. But had he uh-huh. been a real bad guy with a loaded weapon, he definitely would have had the advantage. I was far enough away where, you know, accuracy might have been a problem with the people in the restaurant. But let me tell you, I was walking into his domain at that point in uniform. And, and it was it put me at a significant disadvantage. So I can tell you that's absolutely accurate.
1: Look, When you can identify the only person who may be able to go and stop a a criminal or a terrorist, there's several strategic advantages that the killer has in that case. He can either kill the officer first, he can wait for the officer to leave the scene before he attacks, or he can go and pick some other target where he doesn't see an officer present there. And it's simply impossible to go and have an officer guarding all possible targets. So you know, after you'd have terrorist attacks in in Paris in early 2015, you know the res, the solution from the French president was to put 10,000 troops on the streets. Right. Well, when you're talking about a city of 2.3 million people, and obviously not all 10,000 troops are on the streets at any point in time. Sure, sure. And, you know, it's simply impossible to go and guard all the possible targets that are there. That all you may do is cause the criminal either do one of those three things first, either wait for them to leave, kill them first, or pick one of the other targets that aren't being guarded. And it's a huge strategic advantage that these killers have. And you're exactly right that having concealed carry takes away those strategic advantages that these killers have.
0: Well, it does. And I'm glad you, you brought up Paris because I've always used this example on the show with regards to New York, right? So I was a member of the NYPD, largest department in the country, but you've got a city of eight to nine million people, a department of 35,000 sworn, but only about, I don't know, uh, six to 7,000 of those cops are ever on the street at any given time. I mean, many of them are supervisors who work inside and don't go on patrol. Others are detectives and investigative units, and other people are on vacation or home sleeping, right, or or, it's not their regular day off. And so you only have it in some days, you only have uh, on the weekends when certain details, even if they're uniformed, have time off, you may only have three or 4,000 cops on the street for a city of eight or 9 million. So you uh, uh, point out here that people outside of California and New York, places So California, New York, of course, very difficult to obtain a license to carry a concealed hand. But now, some counties, the more rural counties in California, rural counties in New York, it's easier. Judges can, can give you the, the uh, license in New York or in California, the sheriffs are more inclined to issues, so It's a May issue situation. But uh, uh, outside of those states, 8.5% of adults have a license to carry a concealed handgun. Here in Florida, last number was we have 1.9 million concealed right. weapons licenses issued. But these numbers are staggering. So I want the audience to think about this. Outside of California, except for New York, 8.5% of adults who can legally carry are licensed to carry. In Alameda County, California, there were only 85 people with concealed handgun permits at the end of 2011, out of a population of 1.2 million, a rate of .007%. And as you know, those with permits were mainly judges, prosecutors, and wealthy businessmen. In September 2011, there were only 240 permits in all of Los Angeles County with a population of about 7.6 million adults for a rate of point zero zero three two percent And of those 240 permits, most went to judges and reserve deputies who coincidentally tend to be big campaign donors to the sheriff's 10% of permit holders were on Sheriff Lee Baca's quote unquote gift list. In addition, the attack, uh, Oh, okay, so you refer to reference an attack. In Orange County, a may issue county, there were only 551 people with permits with an adult population of 2.26 million, a rate of 0.02%. Again, mainly judges, prosecutors, and wealthy businessmen. So the privileged elite in these may issue states and counties are considered more worthy of personal protection than are the average working people.
1: Right. Well, and you see it in other ways you can break down the data. I I actually got the list of all the 240 concealed care permit holders in Los Angeles County. And, you know, uh, what you find is that uh, only about 6% are black, only about 6% are uh, 6.5% are Hispanic, uh, about the same percent female. Uh, Obviously, uh, about half the population in the county is Hispanic. Uh, you know, females obviously make up half, about half the percent. Right. So, so it's incredibly and yet,
0: disproportionate to the, to the population and demographic breakdown of the county, which, is, which would, would indicate that this is for the wealthy elite political donors or those who are very well connected. Right.
1: And, and the irony is you have uh, Democrats claiming that they care about women and minorities and what have you. Uh, and yet when they have this discretion and they control the process there over who gets the concealed carry permit, it's basically not only wealthy and well, politically well connected individuals, but it's basically wealthy white males who end up being the only ones who get it as if, and you compare it nationally, uh, nationally women make up about, uh, almost a third of concealed carry permit holders. Right. Wow! But in Los Angeles County, they just make up over 6%.
0: Wow, a, fract- a fraction of a fraction. Dr. John Lott, Crime Prevention Research Center. This is outstanding data. I wanna do a segment next week with you just on that. Let's dig into those numbers and how it debunks the liberal narrative in those places about racial and uh, gender equality. John, is always an absolute pleasure to have you, thanks.
1: Uh, thanks for having me on, John.
0: We can always see that Obama's White House was undisciplined, full of young morons, people like Ben Rhodes. But now a story from the Daily Mail is pretty interesting. A former Obama staffer, a girl, a younger woman who was Obama's stenographer, said that Obama's Air Force One was like summer camp on steroids. And she revealed how Xanax and Ambien on long flights made awkward hookups with colleagues. Funny and bizarre. The woman is named Beck Dory, Beck Dory Stein, and she talks about how traveling with President Obama and his press pool was like, he said, summer camp on steroids. She's writing a memoir from Corner of the Oval, and she was the stenographer in the Oval Office. Uh, you know, her, her book contains many anecdotes, but she apparently got the job by answering a Craigslist ad. And wound up having this affair with a, a member of Obama's staff. But what really struck me was how the, uh, the lack of discipline on Air Force One uh, was. And just how poor discipline was on Air Force One under Obama. She says, uh, quote, no one deserves to be this lucky. She wrote about a core group of staffers who flew around the world on Air Force One together. She felt she wasn't a good job for a... Uh, job at a Washington think tank, but after being a teacher, he was uh, tutoring at Sidwell Friends School, which is a very elite public school in Washington, D.C. Kids of many presidents have have gone there. Um, She answered a Craigslist ad and got a job in the White House. Got a job in uh, the White House. And um, she was was on Air Force One all the time, and what she writes is just mind-blowing. As to how it seemed, nobody in the Obama White House cared how there was a very apathetic approach. And it, it, it's, I just, I can't even believe some of what I'm writing about the, the, um, here's, here's what she says. It was on her first trip, she found herself in $500 a night hotel rooms with breathtaking views of Cabo San Lucas before continuing to Costa Rica, Tanzania, and Laos. She'd listen to old-timer, boozy party animals tell stories about different administrations, presidents, and international incidents they've witnessed. From George H.W. Bush puking on the Prime Minister of Japan, Reagan in Rome falling asleep in front of the Pope, Monica, Lew- Monica Lewinsky 9-11, and Hurricane Katrina. Pinch me, because how is this scene my real life, she wrote. And talks about her trips overseas. Now, I, uh, I um, was particularly just shocked by this. He describes experiencing, quote, the best sleepover party ever. This is on Air Force One. Where everyone took their drug of choice on long flights, Sonata, Xanax, or Ambien, which made any, quote, awkward intimacy with colleagues suddenly just funny and bizarre, end quote. I can tell you, you know that I speak to people in the Trump administration. The discipline, in the Trump White House, and on Air Force One, because Trump doesn't drink. This would never, never be tolerated in the Trump administration by Chief of Staff General Kelly or by Trump's Secret Service detail. Never. Never. Heading for Delhi in India, where the president met the prime minister, she was warned about destitution, the starving children in the streets, begging mothers and thin dogs lying waiting for death in piles of trash everywhere. But no one on this trip saw any of that. They were always protected from seeing the poverty in this country and instead saw a glossy two-dimensional Disney World version while motorcating manicured streets. <clears throat> well, because Obama wanted to also portray that. Obama wanted to uh, portray that. But um, I, I, I just, this, this is really indicative, really indicative of the Obama administration, how the entire staff, Saw it as a party. How Obama saw it as a party. How Michelle Obama's family flew around on Air Force One. Very, very disturbing. Very disturbing to read. Uh, and and of course, she stayed on with um. She stayed on with the Trump administration, or which she describes as the insane clown posse? And she insults. This is an Obama person and the White House executive parking lot now filled with Porsches and Maseratis instead of Priuses and Chevys. What was once a joy has become a walking nightmare. I'm now a stenographer in the Trump administration. So she was a far leftist who thought that taking drugs and having indiscriminate sex on Air Force One, a taxpayer funded aircraft was just great and amazing. But now that she's working in a patriotic administration that puts discipline in place. It's a quote unquote walking nightmare. I hope General Kelly reads this and this moron is fired immediately. But even more importantly, I'm glad she wrote this because it shows the contrast of how Obama treated and respected America and how the Trump administration treats and respects America. If you want to know what fake news is, look no further than CBS. It appears that CBS News was literally caught red-handed printing fake news. So they run a headline yesterday, Sarah Sanders and Raj Shah planning to depart the White House. Of course, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders and Deputy Press Secretary Raj Shah. They write, two of the most visible members of the Trump administration are planning their departures, the latest sign of upheaval in a White House marked by turmoil. Uh, Sarah Sanders, Raj Shah are both heading for the exit, according to sources inside the White House and close to the administration. Anonymous sources. Sarah Sanders then tweets. This is the best part. CBS News includes the Sarah Sanders tweet in their article. Sarah Sanders tweeted, the CBS News knows something I don't about my plans and my future. I was at my daughter's year-end kindergarten event, and they ran a story about my plans to leave the White House without even talking to me. I love my job, and I'm honored to work for POTUS. So let's break this down. CBS News runs the story but doesn't ask the subject of the story, instead relying on anonymous sources, but then includes the subject of the story's tweet debunking the story, yet still runs a headline, Sarah Sanders Raj Shah planning to depart the White House, not Sarah Sanders dispels rumors, debunks rumors, denies rumors that she's planning to leave the White House. I mean, this is literally, literally the definition of fake news. So NBC, uh, CBS, so it's one, two, three, four, five. So let me see. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, 10, 11, uh, 14, 15 paragraphs of them explaining why, why Americans should listen to an anonymous source, but disregard the on the record tweet and statement of the press secretary who says she doesn't know what they're talking about and has no plans to leave the White House. Now, others have said that Sarah Sanders may want to leave the White House by the end of the year as well. It's an exhausting 24-7 job, and she's the mother of young children. If she did leave, you know, that would be understandable. She wants to go to a network, get a big-paying job. But for CBS to run this story, to run this story, and then they start uh, uh, throwing in stats. Turnover during Mr. Trump's first year in office was 34%, nearly four times higher than turnover during the first year of the Obama administration. Yeah, because a bunch of Obama holdovers got booted out. They tried to stay around to sabotage the Trump administration, and it didn't work. But really, this is the epitome, the very definition of fake news. And when you read something like this with the clickbait headline and 15 paragraphs or or so trying to justify their story, despite an on-the-record denial by the subject of the story, well, if that doesn't explain why Americans no longer trust the media, I don't know what does.